0: One is about your spiritual identity that's always true of you, true of you now, true of you in eternity. And that is actually the most essential need of your heart. Meaning, even if we were able to solve all the social justice issues, uh, eliminate white privilege, you know, level the playing field, that would not solve the deepest need of the human heart, which is to be saved from sin and made alive in Christ. So the primary importance of understanding your seat at the table, once that's settled, and once you know that you're set apart for good, Good works, then you absolutely move into the world as an agent of healing and reconciliation and fighting for the oppressed.
1: Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Holland. Like our page on Facebook at Listener, a crew podcast, and follow us on Instagram at crew underscore podcast. And if you never want to miss a new episode, follow us on iTunes. Today's guest is my friend Heather Holloman. Heather is on staff with Faculty Commons, Crew's Ministry to Professors, and she's also a lecturer at Penn State University. Heather was one of the main speakers during Campus Ministry Days at Crew 19 this summer, and she gave us all a copy of her book, Seated with Christ, and started a conversation about what does it really mean that we're seated with Christ as Christ followers and what would our lives really look like? if we lived into that identity. You can connect with Heather at Heatherholoman.com. Enjoy the show. So during session three, our last Campus Ministry Day session, we did that live polling. And the first one we did, the question we asked was, what's been your favorite part of these sessions so far? And the big word on the screen that popped up biggest was Heather. Why do you think that is? Why was that people's... Why did that resonate? Your, why did your talk resonate so much with us?
0: I think it resonated for two reasons. First is people are just hungry for the word. And it when you read the Bible, you know, a lot of my talks are just really heavy in scripture, what the Lord has been teaching me. And I think that when you're in a group of people like that who are missionaries and you just give them... A moment to connect with Jesus and his word. It just is so refreshing. And and when you read a passage like Ephesians 2, it doesn't matter how many times you read it, it reminds you of the gospel and it reminds you of um, just how good Jesus is and what he saved us from and how he set us apart for good works. So I think it resonated because it allowed the staff to breathe a little bit and to also have you know, a really relatable speaker, like one of the things I battled going up on that stage was like, if you look at the bios of all the other people, you know, being announced, you know, even though I, you know, teach and write and do things, I don't compare to all of these people who are just making a global impact doing incredible things. So I think the second reason is sometimes it's cool just to have a mom up there who's honest, like, yeah, I'm struggling with my weight. I worry about money. And here's how the Lord's meeting me in these really... Ordinary things that we struggle with, even though you know we're full-time campus staff, those kind of things. Yeah. So, I don't know—is yes. that what you thought? It just was an ordinary person up there speaking about Jesus.
1: Well, it—it it really is so relatable when you talk about just the insecurities that we all have, and they—they can differ from person to person what it is. You call it being seated, and I guess the, I've always thought of it as insecurities. So I love the new language. But we all are insecure about different things. I mean, it's so funny for me to hear you say, oh, these other speakers that are getting up there, they're so accomplished. I was reading your book this morning and I was like, oh, my gosh, Heather has accomplished so much more (laughs) than me. I don't I don't have a master's degree. If I think about that too much and compare myself for me, that's I guess it's a it's a table I want to be seated at. But for for my image. Yeah. I want other people to look at me and say, oh, she's, she's smart enough. She accomplished that, you know?
0: I'm telling you, it is the sin. I really think that that is the sin we all share is this comparison, this sense that something's missing. I like to comfort myself that Eve was in paradise and Satan was still able to tempt her. Like she had everything and Satan was still able to be like, you're missing something. You don't have something that you need, which was a big lie. So I love that.
1: Yeah. That's crazy and true. Um, it made me think of the Enneagram. Are you into the Enneagram? Have we talked about it? Kind of.
0: I know what everyone is. Um, sometimes I don't love the personality test because I feel like it gives me an excuse to act a certain way like i I, f- I found like of course i'm this way i'm an ENFJ. of course i'm going to dominate the room and need to be the center of attention so sometimes <laughs> i'm like these really limit me and often give me an excuse for my personality which is which is sin um i think the enneagram yeah. i'm the one that's like always achieving and actually i totally
1: my- wondered if you were yes, it's well, enneagram 3
0: My daughter and I had a huge conversation about this. It was like a huge breakthrough because I was basically criticizing her because she's not as productive as I am. Like I want her to do this and this, you know, are you, you know, apply for college, get this scholarship. And then the way I apologized to her is I was like, well, you know, in all my personality tests, I like, I'm a high achiever, you know, I'm really into productivity. And she said to me, mom, the way you are defining those words And the way those personality tests define those words are seriously damaging. Why do you think Mm -hmm. I'm not being productive when I'm in my room thinking or when I'm knitting Mm -hmm. or when I'm doing, you know, when I'm watering my succulent garden? Why is that not achievement? And we really Mm -hmm. had a really honest talk. But so right now I'm like, wow, sometimes those things can you know, damn the language we use can damage. But if I were to be completely yeah. honest, I'm a hundred percent. Is it a three? What am I the one that's the achiever? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think my yes. wing, what would my wing be? I don't even know. I don't know. I did it at one I, point.
1: Well, so I'm an Enneagram four. I'm right next to you. And, but I have a three wing. So the way I would describe it is myself and what I desire and compare myself to others. What I'm measuring is I want I want what I do to be meaningful and noticed. So it's a little bit nuanced from a three. A three is like I, they're both image centered. Yeah. According to the Enneagram, like I want to be noticed for something really meaningful and unique that I'm doing. My friends that are threes say I'm very goal oriented. I want to reach my goals and achieve them and have other people notice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what so I don't know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It just, the reason I was thinking about it is because you keep asking the question when you spoke to us and in your book, like, what are the tables where you want to be seated? And I was thinking of it with Enneagram language. It's like, our number might help us think about and understand what are the tables where I want to be seated. I want to be unique, uh, uh, um, a six might want to be secure, safe. Yeah. Like they want to be seated at a safe table where all their needs are met all the time. Yeah. I don't know.
0: Like financial security. Yeah.
1: For sure. Yes. Yep. So, Heather, y- you are a professor at Penn State.
0: Yes. Technically, and- my title is lecturer, though, an advanced writing director, an advanced writing kind of um director of the advanced writing program, but I'm not like, I'm not a full-time tenured professor.
1: So you're a part-time lecturer and a part-time staff with faculty commons? I'm full-time with crew and part-time at
0: Penn State. I know it's confusing.
1: Yep. Okay. Okay. So tell us about how your work with um, just this spiritual reality of being seated has affected the way that you interact with your college students, or the way that you pray for them, oh, the I way love that you teach that. them. Well,
0: um, in a really practical sense, I really, when I get my court, my list of names, I just begin praying for them, and I believe God chose me to be their um, professor. And I believe in his sovereign choice for them to be in my class. And so I believe I'm like an intervening presence in their life. So I begin praying for them and asking God, how can I bless this student? And I uh, wonder, you know, and ask God, you know, how would you like to use me in the life of this student? And I I really devote myself to helping them develop professionally and develop to become the best writers they can be. It is a fantastic class. I love teaching advanced writing because it's professional development. But because I'm not... I'm not teaching from a position of needing to prove myself because I know I'm seated with Christ and teaching is part of the good works he's prepared in advance for me to do. I don't need them to like me, which means I can just love them freely. I don't need their attention. I don't need them to give. It's like a truly loving gift to teach when you're secure because you're not trying to prove anything. And I don't get into power dynamics. I mean, it's really hard for a student to upset me, even if they're you know, really acting out, really challenging authority. Like I don't need anything from them. So it's awesome to just walk in and love them. And being seated with Christ is one of the most profound things if you're in an academic setting, because everyone's fighting for that title. So everywhere I go, the most awkward conversation, people will say, you know, what's your title? And you're either, you know, full professor, associate, assistant, you know or a full-time teaching faculty where you would be an associate teaching professor, assistant teaching professor. I'm like at the bottom of the totem pole because I'm part-time. But I don't care because I'm seated. I'm like I listen. God's given me a really high title, you know, in 1st Peter 2, nine, he says I'm part of a royal priesthood which would outrank any title, you know, in the room. So, I just seated with Christ really changes how you walk into a space cuz you're secure and then you can love people and not have to um, have your eyes on yourself the whole time.
1: So, I, there was a Faculty Commons book that someone wrote, and you had a chapter in it. I can't yeah. remember what the name of that book was, but it's, it's
0: Grander's Story. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it, right. Yep. Yeah.
1: You're such a good storyteller just about being in these classrooms with your students. Tell us a story about um, some meaningful interaction that you remember with a student recently.
0: Oh my goodness. See, I love it because I, I have too many to tell. I mean, probably my favorite one, I mean, I told a little bit of this story on the stage about the student whose parents called because something I was saying in class brought him back to the Lord. But probably my favorite one th- that is the most recent was um, just a real combative student, someone who was really angry and really hard to deal with. He kept coming to office hours and Um, you know, was pretty hostile to Christianity. He found out I was a Christian and he was sort of mocking and, you know, saying that he was an atheist because intellectuals would be atheists. You know, he was really smart too. He was a really smart student. And I just kept praying for him. And instead of reacting to him, I just kept kind of God gave me the ability to just patiently listen to him. And, you know, we began to share our lives with each other at office hours. And the last day of class I gave him, he's a scientist. And so I gave him Francis Collins book from theism or from atheism to theism, you know, and I thought maybe he's going to think that's really rude. Like I'm trying to, you know, evangelize and I don't know what he would think, but I told him, you know, I, I was really hoping kind of that he would find his way. And he sent me the most beautiful email, you know, two weeks after class ended. And I just cried and cried when I read it because the email said, you know, Dr. H, everyone in my life has failed me until I met you. You are the only person that has ever given me a chance. And I think what he meant by that was engaging with him about these ideas without because he was a pretty difficult personality. And he just said he wasn't sure which way he would choose in his life, you know, a life of faith, but he was so thankful someone had given him a chance and he wanted to stay in touch. And I just love emails like that where even your most difficult student, the one that's the hardest to love, they're like, thank you, you know, for seeing me and sticking with me. So I love stories like that because those Mm -hmm. difficult cases, they just want someone to see them and honor them. I really believe in dignifying students that they all have dignity that God is, wants to invite them to his table. So that image of being seated with Christ at the table, that everyone is equally treasured, equally cherished. So all of that, I just love.
1: We never know what's really going on inside and how maybe they're one step away if we love them and reach out to them in the right way from actually considering that a loving God might be real and right there. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Heather, in your book there, I think it's at the end of chapter, the chapter called Something Missing.
0: Yes. It's,
1: yeah, it says that in Ephesians 2, note the expression alive with Christ as opposed to dead in transgressions. And that reminded me of, I think it was Daryl Smith when he was speaking to us at Crew 19. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Yeah. He came to make dead people alive. And I'm sure I've heard that before, but it just struck me. I think a lot of human beings in the world think that that is what Jesus came to do. He came to, to make bad people good. Yeah, And even when, sometimes when I interact with someone who's not following Christ and they hear that I do follow Christ, it's almost like they think I've passed judgment on them already, yeah. that I think yeah. they're bad. <clears throat> So can you just talk about that, the difference between good and bad and dead and alive? Well, yeah, because
0: Christianity is really about like a soul transaction takes place. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And this idea of being dead in your transgressions and sins, or you could say, you know, you're, you're enslaved. You have no choice but to follow um, Satan. I mean, it's really frightening if you think about it, that you're kind of two options are to be enslaved to sin or to be a slave of righteousness. There's no like middle ground. And so when you think about what the gospel is, it's the Holy Spirit coming inside of you and literally making you a new person. You're dead and he renews you that you get new life. Anyone who follows him has new life. And, um, you know, even if you did a word search of of the word life in the New Testament, it's amazing to think of, you know, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life in 1 John. So that's totally different than, like, a system of morality. I do believe that once the Holy Spirit indwells a person, the process of sanctification begins, which means that you become, you know, more like Christ. But at no point are you, by your own effort, trying to, like— earn God's favor by following a moral code or being good, but you are set free to choose to be good and to be able to be good. That's that's so powerful. So yeah, I mean, it's hard to remember or it's hard to even articulate what it means to be dead in your transgressions and sins. People who've become alive in Christ often can remember that feeling. Little kids who come to faith young, they often don't remember what that spiritual awakening felt like. But, you know, adults will. That's why they called it a born-again experience. You know, in the 70s and 80s, it felt like you became a new person. In fact, the whole gospel is about becoming a new person. The number of times God changes people's names, they literally become new people. Yeah, it's amazing. So, yes, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and we are made alive.
1: So I want to transition to talking about justice a little bit. And here's how I'm making the connection. So we've heard a lot about justice at our last three staff conferences, Crew 15, Crew 17, Crew 19. And you shared with me that you had a conversation with the staff after you spoke who was expressing that sometimes hearing this talk about resting and how we're already seated in Christ can make a person of color feel like maybe they shouldn't be fighting for a seat at the table here on, on earth. Yeah. And I know that's not what you're saying. In fact, I know in your book, you talk about like the round table and how we're all seated equally at Christ's table when we're, we're in Christ. But the reality is here on earth, there there's privilege that does separate us and make it feel like we're not seated at the same place. And so what, responsibility do we have to fight for others to actually have a seat in a different way, but yeah. here on earth.
0: It's a different way. I mean, one is about your spiritual identity. That's always true of you, true of you now, true of you in eternity. And that is actually the most essential need of your heart. Meaning even if we were able to solve all the social justice issues, uh, eliminate white privilege, you know, level the playing field that would not solve the deepest need of the human heart, which is to be saved from sin and made alive in Christ. So the primary importance of understanding your seat the table, once that's settled, and once you know that you're set apart for good works, then you absolutely move into the world as an agent of healing and reconciliation and fighting for the oppressed. Um, and you do that from a position of security in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit because um, God is such a genius. I mean, sometimes at that conf- over the last few conferences, you can get so overwhelmed and you can say, okay, I should quit everything and I need to go work for IJM or I need to solve the water crisis, you know, in the Sudan, or why aren't we adopting more orphans? But the beauty of spiritual living is you can talk to the Lord and ask him, Jesus, what is my role in social justice? What do you want me to do? And then that spirit-filled notion that you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God set apart for you to do, that he will lead you in those works. So I was praying like, okay, God, what how do I speak truth to power? What do I do? And I thought that's one of the roles of the university instructor. There's no teaching people to write, teaching people to have a voice in the marketplace of ideas is huge. And then also to fight for the oppressed. So for example, today I wrote um, I drafted like a three-page letter to our Dean advocating for a living wage for the lecturer pool I will not benefit from that letter I, that salary will never affect me but the oppressed in my community are those that don't have a living wage they're living at the poverty line and if I can use my influence, to write a letter to the dean and put all the research in about why we need a salary raise for our full-time lecturers—that's an, another example. And a lot of those lecturers are women and/or women of color. So I'm like, where wherever you can be a voice for the oppressed to help people realize, um, you know, a seat in the earthly sense—that is good and right work. But they are two different things. You can have the earthly, you know, everything you want and it will not be salvation. And so I really there's there's like a check as I move out into social justice to make sure I'm fighting for the actual need of the human heart, which is forgiveness of sin and to be made alive in Christ.
1: Well, and I think so much of the time in our current Christian culture, there can be a false dichotomy between seated in Christ in the heavenly dimension and where we're seated according to our privilege here on earth and and Jesus cared about both and leads us to to live in both realities at the same time to live as a seated person where we're all equal in him but like you said to still fight against oppression yeah. because that's what he did yeah and that's what he does yeah and i know that's what he leads me to do through the spirit just like you're saying writing letters I mean, Jesus has been, the Holy Spirit has been teaching me about how to advocate for those around me who are oppressed and to be aware of, of just how I'm privileged in different ways because of where I was born and the color of my skin and,
0: and how to use your resources in a spirit led way. I mean, where does God, he owns your resources. Where does he want them to go? You know, and for whom, and, um, you know, and the issues abound, I mean, it if people are listening and they're like well is it okay if i advocate for people battling mental health or what if i care about the rights of the unborn and the sanctity of human life i mean the issues are so great in our world that you could even you could spend a lifetime a lifetime on just one AIDS education. I mean, it's, the issues are great. That's why we need that spirit filled sensitivity and that sense of God, where would you have my resources go? What, what did you make me for in order to help, um, and care for the people around me and love them?
1: Well, and so much of the conversation we're having now in crew is how do we be unified in that kind of diversity? If we're not always equally challenged by the same type of oppression at the same time, how can we respect each other's relationship with God and what the Holy Spirit's calling us to do and who he's calling, how He's calling us to get, advocate against oppression in the world, Yeah, but be unified in Christ—
0: Yes, well, that that's why I love the image of being seated at the table with everyone. Because I'm like, I am at the table with these people that are doing these amazing things. And, you know, I never feel inferior, but I also don't feel superior. I'm just here, you know how can I help what you are doing or how can you help what I am doing or how can I just pray or how can I be here? Yeah, the I think right now in cultural criticism, we're in such a divisive kind of um, argumentative, uh, I don't know, atmosphere. I mean, it's just Twitter, you know, the the tearing down, the, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to other than to just read the word and you know he says you know speak with humility don't don't stir up controversy don't you know even the public display of argument i uh, so many people i'm like i really believe that the time you're spending on twitter if you went and made a casserole for your neighbor in the time <laughs> you're spending arguing you know what i mean like maybe just stop talking mm-hmm. and go do something yeah um, I think a lot of disunity comes, though, when people who care so much about Jesus and they care so much about his word, they they get nervous, I think, if you stop exalting him as sufficient somehow. So I love that idea that there's a hierarchy, that, that Je- we exalt Jesus, we exalt his word. It's sufficient for life and godliness. And now we move into the world and we need training in how to best work for the oppressed, but you can't invert those. You can't make one an idol. That's why I loved when Daryl Smith basically called us out and said we are making this an idol that our you know your your ethnicity and having that seat it can be an idol. Getting rid of of or, or gaining privilege in the culture and power in the culture can be an idol. And I, I was so I felt that talk was such... A spirit-filled breath of fresh air when he was like, yeah, Jesus is the most important thing. So, I don't know. Did you feel
1: that way? Was that his second talk?
0: I think it was his first one. Was it his first one? I think it was his first one in the morning. He said, I'm a black man. That's not the most important thing about me. That whole kind of riff that he was doing. I'm this, but it's not the most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. What I remember him saying was something about Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. And yeah. Like, it was in all of we, that. The yeah, flag, it, and, all of
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. It was in that whole thing.
1: Yeah. It's hard to be a Christian today because politics divides us so much. And because um, we only have two choices. When it, every four years, we have two choices and there's honestly issues on both sides that would relieve oppression and so christians take different sides and it becomes this really divisive environment every 4 years i dread it i don't go oh, no. i don't go online yeah. very much during that year because yeah i just think it's um, polarizing and so i loved it was either him or either, i can't remember who said it but jesus wasn't a republican or a democrat
0: Right. I mean, I do love that Chuck Colson quote where he talks about how our hope is not in who governs us or what laws are passed as a nation. Our hope is in Jesus Christ changing the lives of people. And so every election year, I'm like, you know what? Even if I had the best candidate, it would not solve the problem of sin in the human heart. You cannot legislate your way. Into righteousness. Mm -hmm. So I just don't have any hope in it. I mean, I pray for our leaders, though. We're commanded to pray for them. I want to bless them and pray for wisdom, but I don't put a lot of hope, um, you know in leaders. I do put a lot of hope in communities of spirit-filled people solving the problems in their communities. That is what I love seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, like when our church gets together and does Feed My Starving Children and Christians and unbelievers alike come and gather and pack food for the poor. I love that. I love, you know, we're in a small town, but it's a college town. So I get excited about seeing local people making a difference. So.
1: Well, and you mentioned Maybe a better use of time being, maybe not being on Twitter, but taking a casserole to your neighbor. I know that you've seen <laughs> God do a lot in your, is it the neighborhood you live in now? And I remember yes, it was I love like my neighborhood. Walking to school with parents and all kinds of things that God was doing. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, I asked, you know, Lord, how could I gather my neighbors together to bless them and love them. And one of the needs of my neighborhood. So like, if you're in a neighborhood right now, a great question is like, what is the greatest need of this community? And this was about eight years ago and nobody was playing outside. Nobody was getting exercise. All of us were gaining weight because Minecraft had come out and, you know, the, we, I talk about Sarah with the, we, and like, we live a mile from the school and parents were literally driving their kids in the minivan. And, um, I was just like, number one, this is not healthy. Number two, I had a ton of nostalgia for my own childhood in the 80s where we would just run around until our parents called us in for dinner. So I literally, and this was like a spirit-filled moment because my husband was like, you are crazy. I took out the phone book. And if you lit this was again, eight years Wait, ago, I still book? had a ground line. Yeah, it was eight years ago. So I said, st- or maybe 10 years ago now. So I still had okay. a ground line okay. and I had a directory of our neighborhood. And if you lived within a mile of my home, I literally called. And this is what I said. I was like, hello, this is Heather Holloman. You don't know me, but I would like to know if your children would want to play outside tonight. I'm going to have bikes and jump ropes and stopwatches. We're going to do games. Oh my goodness. 14 neighbors came with their kids. Some of them didn't even have bikes for their kids. So they went down to Walmart and, um, I had to learn how to teach kids how to play double Dutch. Well, we did it every Monday night and it got so big. We had about 50 neighbors coming out. We had to move down to the church parking lot. And then we launched a walk to school campaign for fitness, but the whole time we're walking the mile there, the mile back, it was just so easy to talk to people about the Lord and share my life with them. And, you know, in that community, we were able to figure out, okay, who needs job training? Who is grieving? Who needs this? What are, you know, how can we help here? And we all kind of came together and helped people. We did service projects, um, It was a a really special time. Now that the kids are in college and most of them are in high school, the new thing my husband and I have done, we started a soup and story ministry because I couldn't figure out how to get my neighbors together anymore. But I realized in the cold winter, everyone needs to eat. And everyone can give an hour to eat dinner. So on Monday nights, I make a pot of soup and I say, you know, come over. And the neighbors, they'll say, well, what can I bring? And I say a story about your day. So it's called Soup and Story. We love that. So the neighbors come over and we cry together. We talk about our lives. Again, you know, where are people experiencing oppression in their life? And how, do you, how can you help? Um, so that's been great that's just the latest thing um it's weird though when kids grow up I'm trying to find new ways to gather the moms and dads together but so soup and story I have great soup recipes if you want any
1: I love that soup and story it's cold here in the winter too not quite as cold as where you are but dreary gray yeah and kind of drizzly yeah. all winter and that's so right we don't see anyone unless we make unless we're intentional yes
0: I was in Seattle for three years, so I remember. Oh, you get it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So in chapter two, you shared with us that this is in in your book, Seated with Christ, Living Freely in a Culture of Comparison. In chapter two, which is called a single verb, it says, my students call me a walking exclamation point, which I agree with that. Uh They do. You talk about how a great verb can change your life, how you've always loved verbs since you were a young girl. And I know now you have a podcast about verbs. Can you tell us about verbs and about your podcast?
0: Yes. Okay, my podcast is called The Verb with Heather Holloman, and it's just a 10-minute podcast every Friday that goes over a verb in scripture that's changed my life. So there are 16 I believe 15 episodes up right now, but every episode is a different verb. So of course I do seated for a couple of different verbs, but then I do guarded, included, chosen. Um, Tomorrow I'm recording my podcast and I'm looking at the verb endure in scripture, which is an awesome awesome Greek verb, endure, persevere. Mm. Um, But the reason why I started a podcast was because um, I'm working on a book, an evangelism book called Scent that's due in February. And I was looking at that metaphor of what it means to fish for people when Jesus says, follow me and you will fish for people. It's such a great metaphor. Well, as an evangelist, I was like, I want to make sure I'm casting bait where the fish are biting. And I was like, where are the fish biting? The people in my life, where are they going for information? Where are they going where I could have influence in their life? Oh my gosh, Sam, you're going to die. So for a month, I was like, are the fish biting on Twitter? What if I have a great impact on Twitter and we'll see, you know, there's going to be fruit there. No, it was completely toxic. And the Lord was like, get off of Twitter. So I walk into class one day and I noticed all my students are, you know, they all have their AirPods and... I was like, what do you guys listen to? And they were like, podcasts. And they all listed like their top five or 10 podcasts. And all day long, that's all these students are listening to. So that day, I was like, is is this where the fish are? Is this the new generation? Is it all podcasting? And at the time I was recording some videos for Proverbs 31 and the videographer was like, you're so good on camera and you're so good on the fly. I don't understand why you're not podcasting. I was like, cause I don't know how to podcast. <laughs> and he was like, you have a great voice. I'm a podcast producer. Um, why don't I record and help you launch your podcast. And I'll do the first five episodes for free. And then you just go get a sponsor. So Moody Publishers is sponsoring, um, I think, six months of my podcast. Because it's expensive. I don't know how you do it. My producer knows how to you know, host it and do all this stuff. And I pay him. But...
1: It probably so, sounds more professional than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing about podcasting, this is
0: why I love God's word so much. I was like, God, should I be doing this? I don't know. It seems kind of silly. Is this, you know, cause I don't listen to a lot of podcasts and I was just reading in the Psalms about declaring his name more and more. And I thought, okay, a podcast is more. And it said, and declaring it to the next generation And I was like, I got to do whatever it takes. Wherever these kids are, I got to be there. So I'm on Snapchat. I'm on Instagram. You know, I'm like, because blogging is old. Blogging was like so 2005, Mm -hmm. 2010. I've been blogging, you know, every day since 2010. Mm -hmm. And I just think podcasting might be the new thing. What do you think? You love your podcast, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have been doing this podcast for about two years since Crew 17, just because... I noticed that between our staff conferences, there wasn't a space really for staff to continue listening to conversations that were about really important things that are going on in the kingdom of God and in crew. And so I really feel like God just gave me the idea because I was between roles. I had no idea what was next. And I was every day just telling God, whatever you want to do with, with, my life, you know, whether it's, (laughs) even if it's like not with, not on staff, I really was kind of at a crossroads. And one day my husband, Darren just said, well, what would you do if you could do anything? And it was the first moment I even thought of it. I said, oh, I think I would start a crew podcast. And he just encouraged me. That's a good idea. And so I just wanted crew to enter a space, like you're saying, where people are and where we're not that is always who crew has been about taking jesus and the freedom and the life that he brings into spaces where people are going because why would we hang out where they're not (laughs) no and
0: i I, what i love about it is it's private Um, my students who are listening to my podcast don't have to tell anyone they can have a moment with me and with jesus and they don't have to tell anyone and that's really important if you're really spiritually seeking, um, the privacy of being able to listen to a podcast as you're on the bus and just have that moment—I don't know—it's kind of special. Although, it is—it is work. It, <laughs> it sure is work, is. you know, to record and to. But I just pray the Lord blesses it. And again, though, back to seated with Christ, you know, I don't look at my um, numbers. I don't look at like how many people are watching because when it first came, I was like, what is a successful pod or view it or listening? I was like, what's a successful podcast. Those kind of things will just destroy your soul. I've learned like the more I've had to become like a public person with the books and with public speaking. And the more I'm like, you've got to be aware of what ensnares your soul. And so just do it because you love it. Not because millions of people are going to listen to it. Um, Like when I wrote Guarded by Christ, it it wasn't like the bestseller that Seated was. And it really bothered me. I was like, well, God, I thought I was obedient to you to write this book and nobody's reading it. I mean, it's sold. It just hasn't been quite the success. And then one day I was at church and this woman came up to me and she was crying. And she said, Heather, my son is in prison. And every night I sleep with your guarded book on my chest and I hold onto it and I cry with Jesus. And I thought, I wrote the book for you. That is enough. Just that, you know, that Mm -hmm. one reader. So I think about that with the podcast, just that one listener, because when you think about the fruit God has ordained for your life, it's never about impact that you can see necessarily. It's just obedience to the fruit he wants to bear. And sometimes I think he saves you from seeing the impact um, because it's bad for your soul. Do you know what I mean? Do you feel that way? Yeah. Like if you became famous, it would kill you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel yeah. like God has protected me from having money because he knows it it <laughs> yes. would be a huge idol and distraction for me. Yeah, And it being freed up from even being able to pursue that lets allows me to focus on the things and the people that he actually really yeah. wants me to focus on and made me to focus on for sure. I love that. And I think about, you know, it is Our culture just says, once you have, you know, tens of thousands of followers, whatever platform you're on, that's when you've made it. That's when you're successful and you can put a swipe up link on your Instagram is when 10,000 people are following you. But like you said, it's Jesus cares about the every and the one. And so I think sometimes he is trying to show me that, like you said, it's the one person who comes up and says you know, I heard this podcast episode, and it changed my life. And I think, yeah, that's enough. Yeah, that, that's enough.
0: It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And just to sit in whatever fruit God has ordained for your life, whether hidden or exposed, mm-hmm. large or small. But it's taken me a long time to learn that because it's painful at first, because you just... I don't know. You measure your life. My daughters are, I was like, mom, when are you going to be verified on Instagram? <laughs> Can you believe that? Verified. Like, girl, I am verified. You get I'm that, seated. That check. With the, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I was like, never. I mean, I have less than 2,000 followers. I was like, girls, I think you think I'm more famous than I am. Um you know, just because you have books in bookstores. I'm like, I think I'm verified in the heavenly realms. I don't think it's going to happen for me on Instagram, (laughs) but if it does, I'll let you know.
1: (laughs) Heather, I want to ask you again about being a professor because um, you even said about like your students being able to listen to you just intimately without anyone else knowing, listen to your podcast. So sometimes those of us who aren't, professors when we look at that world of academia and um, being a christian on a u- university campus we think oh that must be scary it she must not be able to talk about her faith or if she does i bet she gets in big trouble but that doesn't seem like their reality with you so can you talk about well, how well part of it out- is good yes
0: how to, well, part of it is um, faculty commons trains us really well. I know my rights. I know my First Amendment rights. I know I have legal advocacy within crew. I mean, I'm allowed to identify myself as a Christian. There's no prohibition against that. Um, if a student asks me about my faith, I'm allowed to talk about Jesus. In terms of my personal—anywhere any anywhere I go and identify myself as a representative of the, of the university— that's when I'm careful about talking about Jesus. But in terms of my private life, my writing, my blogs, my podcast, I'm free to um, you know express my views, just like any other professors expressing their views in a public forum. They want it to be a marketplace of of, an, of ideas. If I speak up as a religious conservative, I am adding to the diversity of conversation. But unfortunately, a lot of universities don't want that. But I know that I'm protected by the First Amendment. So, I mean, you want to be wise. Sometimes if students ask me in class, like, um, you know, someone asked me why I became a Christian and I had to say to the class, you know, do I have your permission to share this story? Or would you like me to wait until class is over or you can come to a coffee shop? You just want to, like, teach your course material and not use class time to talk about Jesus, but you can't not be yourself. I mean, I have to have integrity as a teacher. When I walk into the room, I bring Jesus with me. I can't not. So, yeah. But it depends where you are. I'm at a very wonderful university. Penn State is amazing. It depends what the campus culture is. And Penn State's a good culture right now.
1: In conclusion, what when you think about what you want this book, Seated with Christ, to do— in a reader's life. How would you summarize that?
0: I would say I want Seated with Christ to set people free, that they have everything they need when they are with Jesus. And the way to picture that is your seat with him in the heavenly realms, because nothing else matters than his presence, your relationship with him, that love relationship. And I think Seated with Christ unites you to Christ and helps provide a shape for your whole life with those three A's that you you can adore, access, and abide for the rest of your life and move out into the world producing good fruit. So that's my dream.